the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6. We'll read beginning at verse 20 and then through the first four verses of chapter 6. And while you're turning there, uh, let me just uh, remind you, I'm always surprised by this. I guess it's because I grew up in the north and I'm still accustomed to fall leaves and snow falling and that kind of stuff. And so Advent always sneaks up on me. It just does. And next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent. Um, And I tell you that because uh, I want to tell you what it is we're going to be doing through the four Sundays in Advent. I want to take my cue from the Apostle Paul in this fifth chapter who says that Adam is a type of the one to come. And what I want to do in the four Sundays of Advent is, is help us to find Waldo in the Old Testament, right? Where's Waldo? Those of you who are parents and have had young kids, you know these books, Where's Waldo? And what I'd like to do specifically in the four Sundays in Advent, looking at the creation narrative and then Genesis 3.15, what I want us to see is how Jesus fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king, which were first there in the first Adam. Adam was the first prophet, first priest, and first king. But he points to the greater prophet, priest, and king, and what I really want us to see in the course of Advent is that Jesus fulfilling those offices of prophet, priest, and king becomes this conquering warrior who crushes the head of the evil one and destroys his power. Let's start today, right? That's what I want us to see over the next four weeks. So next week... We'll be reading Deuteronomy 18, beginning at verse 15, in which Moses tells Israel that God is going to raise up from among them a prophet like himself. A prophet. That's where we're going to start, with the prophet, okay? Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following. So, you're forewarned. Now, this morning, Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 20, and reading through verse 4 of chapter 6. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Lord, please help us understand your word. And as we understand your word, help us to see that you've not only done something for us, you've done something to us. Help us to see that and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we look at these uh, verses, um, I just want to make this observation with you 
that chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're not a part of the original text. Uh, They're not there until like the 13th, 14th century. Some, Some monks, simply for convenience, inserted chapter and verse divisions. And I simply make that observation because as we come to chapter 6, I don't want you to think that the Apostle Paul is sort of coming to something new, that, that, that something, he's finished with something, and now he's, he's taking up some new part of his argument regarding the gospel. That's not what's going on. He's continuing to unpack the gospel for us. He's continuing to march his way through what the gospel is and its implications for us. And as we come to this particular passage, I'm going to give you three things to look for as we think about these verses. And here's the first thing. The grace of God is risky. The grace of God is risky. And here's the second thing. The grace of God is bigger than you think because sin is bigger than you know. The grace of God is bigger than you think because sin is bigger than you know. And here's the third thing. The grace of God is more than forgiveness. The grace of God is deliverance. Okay, those three things. Now, first thing, the grace of God is risky. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's here in this text. I think it's in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin? Are we to continue in sin in order that grace might increase? What's he saying? What's Paul saying here? As he continues to unpack this gospel, well, let me let me kind of get at it and illustrate it in this way. Years ago, probably twenty-five years ago, when Barbara and I were living in Indiana, I was leading a small group of students who were studying theology. They, they wanted to take some courses in theology, and they were doing that through an extension class offered by Covenant Theological Seminary, our denomination's theological seminary. And in the course of that class, in the course of one of those lectures, the professor said something that, to my knowledge, I heard for the first time, now this is 25 or so years ago, but which I have heard numerous times since from a number of different people, as recently as this last week, when I started reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones' expositions of chapter 6 of Romans. And this is what that professor said, and this is what I've heard across these last 25 years. If you are preaching and teaching the gospel, and you are not getting the response that Paul got from his preaching of the gospel remembering that his gospel he received from Jesus Christ, which means that it's Christ's gospel, if you are not getting the kind of response in your preaching and teaching of the gospel that the apostle Paul got, then you are not preaching Paul's gospel and you're not preaching Jesus' gospel. Now what does that mean? Simply this. If you preach, if I preach and teach Christ's gospel, Paul's gospel, then you will have people saying this, wow, Christ lived a perfect life, a life of perfect obedience and righteousness. He died a death 
for sinners as a substitute in the place of sinners. If a sinner accepts Jesus Christ and his life of obedience, perfectly righteous, and his death as a substitute in which he suffered the judgment of God against him in the place of people who have broken the law, that sinner is justified, declared innocent and positively righteous in the presence of God. Christ gets all of the sin of the sinner and the sinner gets all of the righteousness of Christ. If I a sinner, accept this gospel, if I accept this forgiveness and this righteousness of Jesus, it no longer matters what I do. It no longer matters what I do. No matter how much I sin, no matter how grievous my sin, It won't matter because Christ died for it. It is forgiven and I am free. It will never matter what I do. What would you say? What would you say? This is not the time for discussion, so don't put hands up. Because I want to tell you what I would say person comes to me and says, I think I'm beginning to understand this gospel. If I accept Jesus, it means that all my sin is forgiven, past and present and future, all of it removed from me, given to Christ. Christ dies for it. No matter how much I sin in the future, it won't matter. No matter how big my sin in the future, it won't matter. Christ died for it. It is forgiven, right? No matter what I do. And my answer to that person is, you are absolutely right. And here is what I would do. I would take that person back to Romans chapter 5, and I would show that person Paul's language in chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died because of the one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Five times, Paul uses the phrase, how much more? Three times, he uses the words, abounded and abundance. And here is what I would say to that person who comes to me, you cannot out sin, the grace of God. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. 
there's part of me that wants to say to him, go try. And I'm deadly serious. There's part of me that wants to say, go try. See if you can outsin the grace of God. Now, as a pastor, I wouldn't say that. I know better. Because then I would take him deeper into chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul says, what benefit was there for you previously in the sins that you committed? What fruit was there? What, how did it work for you? We'll come to that in the next few weeks after Advent and after the first of the year. But the first thing that I would want to press home is that no matter how big the sin, no matter how much the sin, past, present, or future, if you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, if you receive his life of obedience for your righteousness and his death for your forgiveness, no matter what you have done or ever will do, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus again. Ever. You cannot outsin the grace of God. And that's what Paul has been saying. And that's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel means. The Christian is one who has accepted this righteousness and accepted this forgiveness. And so now there is no need ever to worry, to be afraid, to be uncertain ever again. There is peace with God. Romans 5.1 There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus again. Nothing. No thing. And I would want to press that home with this seeker, with this inquirer. I would want to press this home with anyone who comes to me and says, I'm deeply troubled. You're not going to believe what I did. I would say, I've been in ministry for over 30 years. You cannot surprise me. And you cannot outsin the grace of God. Grace superabounds even where sin increases. Now, that's the response that I give to someone who comes to me and asks me this question. And I want you to notice how Paul responds to it when he responds to this person. If everything that you're telling me is true, if it's that free, if it's that thorough, if it's that complete, where's the party? Where's the party? Let's sin so that grace can abound still more. When you preach the gospel, that is that big, the sufficiency of a Christ whose righteousness is that big, whose forgiveness is that thorough, that is the response that you should get to your preaching of the gospel. Where's the party? Let's sin so that grace can abound. That's what Paul is responding to in this verse. But I want you to notice how he responds. I want you to notice first how he doesn't respond. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, are you kidding? Are you nuts? 
Don't you get the gospel? Don't you see how this works? Jesus has died for you. Jesus has given his life for you. Jesus has paid the price for you. Now, go be a good boy. Go be a good girl. You see that? When this person comes to him with this response to how full and free and big the gospel is, he doesn't say, look, you've come to Christ for forgiveness and for his righteousness. You have peace with God. You've been planted in this grace. You have this standing in his presence. You're justified. You're declared innocent. You're declared positively righteous. Don't be ridiculous. Go be a good boy. Go be a good girl. Here are the rules. Keep them. He doesn't say that, friends. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't even say what this wonderful hymn that we've just sung suggests. And I don't quibble with the hymn, but there's something else in the story that needs to be unpacked. He doesn't even say, look, you've come to Jesus for forgiveness. Now, as an expression of gratitude, go be a good boy. Go be a good girl. He doesn't even say that. Here's what he says. And this is where we come to the second thing. He says this. In effect, are you crazy? Don't you see what has happened? It isn't just that Christ has done something for you, outside of you, external to you. That's your justification. That's reconciliation. That's adoption. Don't you see? He's done this declarative thing. Christ obeyed for you. Christ died for you. You've accepted that. And as you've received it by faith, God has declared you positively righteous, positively innocent. He's reconciled you to himself. He's made you a son. He's made you a daughter. But don't you see? He's done this other thing too. He's done something to you. You died to sin. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised to newness of life. Do you see that? He doesn't say, go be a good boy. What he wants to do is what he admonishes them to do in verse 11 of the sixth chapter. He wants them to start thinking differently about themselves. That's where it begins. Even so, consider yourselves. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. See, it isn't just that something has happened for you. It is that something has happened to you. I think Paul would say, if you view the grace of God simply in terms of forgiveness, you have too small a view of grace. If you view sin simply in terms of the violation of the law, meaning a legal problem, you have too, few, too small a view of sin. Sin is much bigger than you know, and grace is much bigger than you think. And that's the second thing. Grace is much bigger than you think, and it must be. Because sin is such a massive, massive problem. 
Sin is far more than merely breaking a law. Sin is far more than lawlessness, which incurs a penalty. Which penalty Christ has paid in his death upon the cross. That is the ground of your justification. But sin is also a power, my friends. It is a power. And it is a power much bigger than you can imagine. That's the kind of language that the apostle uses back in chapter 5 and then into chapter 6. Look at the words that he uses. Look at the things that he says. Look at just at verses 20 and 21. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Back up in verse 13 and verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What Paul's doing in those verses is simply differentiating the people who lived under the law from the time of Moses down to the time of Christ and those who preceded those who lived under the law of Moses. And all he's saying is, look, people who lived before Moses showed up on the scene didn't sin in exactly the same way Adam did. He violated a a specific command. But what is the evidence that, that death reigned because of sin? The evidence that death reigned because of sin is that everybody died. Death is the evidence of that. Death reigned because of sin. It is a power. It is a force. And you're helpless against it. In chapter 6, he uses the imagery of slaves and masters. He refers to sin as a master that enslaves. We've said this repeatedly in this church. Nobody's free. Don't, Don't fall prey to these modern notions that the greatest virtue of all virtues is the virtue of freedom. I saw Braveheart. I saw Mel Gibson stretched out on that cross-like piece of wood with his innards being ripped out by some malevolent, malicious, and nasty person, screwing up his courage to utter that one word, freedom. It's an illusion, my friends. No one is free. Everyone is somebody's slave. Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And that's it. And that's what Paul is saying. Sin is a master that enslaves. And when you are a slave, you have no freedom. Sin reigns. It's a king, it's a potentate, it's a power. Sin reigns. It is a master. That enslaves. I say to you folks over and over again, I know you hear it ad nauseum, sin is a really big problem. 
It's a really big problem. Those of you who have seen the Lord of the Rings stories, you remember the scene in which the fellowship, Frodo and Sam and the rest, are deep in the mines of Moria. Kazadum. They're down in the bowels of the earth. And they're trying to escape from these orcs, these nasty, hideous, creepy creatures. And as they're trying to make their escape, they hear these thunderous footsteps. It caused the mountain to tremble. Everything shakes. And what is it? It's Durin's bane. It is the Balrog. And even the orcs flee in the presence of the Balrog. It is the incarnation, the personification of all malevolent, evil power, save one. And that is Sauron, who is even more evil and more malevolent. And Frodo and Sam and the rest of the fellowship are powerless before the Balrog. And Frodo begins to understand that he is powerless before the power of the ring Sauron's ring, the ring through which he seeks to reign and control all of Middle-earth and bring it under his dark, death-inducing power. They're helpless. They're helpless. And that is what sin is. It's a power, and the evidence of it is death. And then notice this other thing, this really striking thing that Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. Now look, here's, this is what we do. I do it. I did it with my kids. God have mercy upon them. God have mercy upon my children for the idiot parent that they had. When my kid breaks the law, what is my response? Create a bigger law. Create a bigger fence. That's what the government does. People do stupid stuff on Wall Street. What do we do? We erect new laws. We make new laws. People do stupid stuff at every level of society. What do we do? We look to the Congress. Do something about this. Do you see what Paul is saying about law? Do you see what law does? Law does nothing to control contain or correct sin. Not a thing. In fact, Paul is saying that law has the opposite effect. It actually increases sin. The word's interesting in the text. It has two prepositions attached to it. The word that's translated law came in, it actually literally translated means this. Law came in alongside. Law came in alongside. It didn't just come in, but it came in alongside. It came in alongside what? It came in alongside sin. Sin and law partner. They work together. Not to correct or to control, but to expose and even, even make worse. Law came in to increase the trespass. 
right? Sin is a lion, and law arouses the lion. Sin not only arouses the lion, sin aggravates the lion, or law aggravates the lion. I dare say you've seen this. I dare say you've experienced this, right? Ever passed a park bench that had a little sign on it that said, don't touch wet paint? Now, I will ask for a show of hands. If you have passed that park bench or that door frame or that door with that sign on it and you have not touched that park bench, that door frame, or that door, please raise your hand. All right, so we got four liars in the group. Okay? Do you see, don't you see that? Have you ever had an 18-month-old child? Have you ever seen this? Have you ever watched an 18-month-old child stare squarely in the face of a parent and do the very thing that the parent has just said, don't do that? See, I don't want to go all the way back to, to chapter 118 through 320, okay? But this notion that human beings are born innocent that human beings are a kind of a blank slate upon which you can write righteousness, we know in our experience that that is not true. What does law do? It exposes and it enrages. Because every time God says something to you or me, do this, don't do that, the balrog, deep in the bowels of our souls, rises up and says, you will not tell me what to do. You will not tell me what to do. Sin is a power. Sin is a force. Sin is a dominion. It is the balrog deep within us. And all law does is expose it and enrage it. And that's why it is a big mistake. It's a big mistake. I want to encourage my daughters with their husbands to do this differently from the way I tended to do it. It is a big mistake to take a disobedient child and say, stop it, stop it, stop it. Do this, do this, do this. What I need to do with my disobedient child is sit with my disobedient child and say, my beloved child, we, you and I, have an enormous problem here before which we are powerless. And we need, we need the greater Gandalf to slay the Balrog in our souls. We need this. Sin is a power. It is a dominion. And what we're going to get to look at in the weeks to come, after the holidays, is what Paul has to say, not only about what Christ has done for me in my justification, so that I am secure and safe, 
safe, never to fear the wrath and judgment of God. Not only that he's done something for me, that's my justification, but he has done something to me. If I am a Christian today, this is what Paul is saying, if I really and truly am a Christian, something decisive has happened. And all of that business in 12 through 21 about Adam and the second Adam, the better person, the better effect, and the better way, the stuff that we looked at and I tried to stumble through two weeks ago, all of that stuff about Adam is simply there to convey this notion that if you are a Christian today, you are no longer in Adam. You're no longer in Adam. You're no longer under the reign of sin and death. Paul Use Paul's language in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom are to be found light and life. That is what has happened to you, not just for you. And so Paul, again, in verse 11, says, reckon yourself thus. Think of yourself in this way. And that's what he's going to work out. And so grace, the grace of God is bigger than you know because sin is bigger than you think. And the grace of God is more than forgiveness. It is also deliverance and transference. If you're a Christian this morning, you're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room is from a different country. Nobody in this room, as nearly as I can tell, is native to this land. My ancestors are virtually all Irish. There are a few Welsh and a few English. When my Irish ancestors came to this country, in the early part of the 19th century, they came saying, Erin Gobrach, Ireland forever. But when they became citizens of this land, they had to learn a new language, they had to adopt new customs, they had to assimilate themselves gradually, bit by bit, into new habits of living. And Aaron Gobrach became long live the United States. They're in a new country. They're in a new realm under new laws with new language and new habits and new customs. And that happened for every single one of your ancestors. And that on a much larger scale far more deeply and far more significantly is what Paul is saying to you, to me, and about us. I am no longer in Adam. I am no longer in the realm of sin and death, but I have been transferred to a new realm, to a new kingdom, and now it is my joy to learn the language and the habits of the new heaven and the new earth. That is who we are. That is where we are headed. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, as we come to this table, may we come to this table recognizing that this table is the table of a new kingdom and a new realm. And that you, by this great grace, this grace that abounds, that overwhelms sin and judgment, this great grace has made us citizens of this new realm.